Thank you. You may be seated. You know, of uh, the accusations that were laid against uh, Jesus by uh, the the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, uh, there is one where Jesus is called a glutton and a drunkard. They called him a glutton and a drunkard. Now, uh, uh, gluttony, uh, we, we, would, we would call a sin because what it, 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 what it essentially is is idolatry. The same with, with alcoholism or, or, or drunkenness. It's essentially at its core, it's, it's idolatry. It's, it's taking a thing that God made good and elevating it to a great thing and a thing that is actually worshipped. It's a thing that some people have turned their lives over to and, and allow it to reign and rule over them, or it's something that they have turned to to save them, a uh, thing that they use to help them cope with the difficulties of life. Uh, and so uh, here are these, these Pharisees, and they're, they're leveling this accusation of Jesus that he is a, a glutton and, and uh, a drunkard. Now, um, we, we, we see in, uh, in, in the scriptures, especially in the gospels, we see how Jesus lived in a way that was completely faithful to his father, a way that was completely faithful to, uh, to the Lord God, that he never worshiped anything less, he never worshiped anything other than his father. And so this idea that that he elevated uh, food or elevated alcohol to a place of worship is is just not true. Um, He was not a glutton and a drunkard. But you see, the reason why these accusations were leveled against him, not because he ate and he drank, it's because of who he ate and drank with. It was, it was one of those things where if, if Jesus would have not called them out on their hypocrisy, if he would have ate and drank with them, they would have had no problem with it. But he was not eating and drinking with them. He was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. The dregs of society, that is who he was sharing meals with. And that was their ultimate complaint. He's eating and drinking with sinners, so he is a glutton and he is He's a drunkard. Now, what's interesting is when we look uh, at, at the Gospels, especially the, the, the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus eating a lot, actually. Uh, one commentator, uh, Robert Karras, in his book, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, concluded, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. He's always eating. And, uh, and, and, and if, you, if you take a step back and you look at, at Scripture as a whole, and you look at, at, at God and, and the people that he's created, and you look at food in relationship to there, you see that food is all over the place. Go back to the beginning, in, in the garden, and, and, and when God um, created an, an object that would, would, we could identify as, as, as eternal life, right? Something that could be grasped as, as eternal life. The object is food. It's fruit from the tree of life. When, uh, on the other hand of this, when he, when he created something to, to, to embody disobedience or obedience, it was fruit. It was tree from the knowledge of good and evil. Like, it was food that was either a means of faithfulness or the means of disobedience. And you fast forward to the book of Exodus, and, and what we see are these, these, these children of God, and they're enslaved in Egypt, and the, the night that they're brought out of that slavery, it is a meal that they're enjoined by God to eat together known as this Passover meal. And they would eat of this meal every year. And not only was it the Passover, but there were also these, these other feasts that God instructed his people to eat as a way of connecting with them. If you look at the tabernacle, 
It was this portable tent that God uh, had them create, and when they would stop and camp in the wilderness, the tabernacle went up in the middle, and all the camp was around it, and at the center of this tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was, and, and, and here was this table for bread, bread that symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's a picture of God in the middle of his people sharing a kind of meal with them. And you fast forward to the New Testament, we see Jesus eating and drinking with sinners. We saw this a couple of weeks ago, that there are these tax collectors who are reclining at table with Jesus. It's this picture of his fellowship with them. And, and it's no coincidence that the, the night before he was killed, he took bread and he took wine and he used these things as symbols. He instituted the Lord's Supper, these, these things that would, would forever connect his people to him. And it's, it's consumables, it's food. What's interesting, too, is that um, the first uh, and second century church, the, the, the Romans and the Greeks, they thought they were cannibals because uh, this, this notion of eating uh, the flesh of Christ or uh, drinking the blood of Christ, they didn't really understand that this was symbolic. But, but food has always been a part of, of, of the church. And, and I think the most beautiful passage in, in all of Scripture regarding this um, actually uh, is about this feast that's, that's yet to come. Uh, John, in, in the book of Revelation, he talks about a time when everything's going to be restored. There's no more death. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's no more tears. All of that is going to happen. And, and it happens as the, at this time where the groom, Jesus, and his bride, the church, come together, and there's this marriage feast of the Lamb, this, this, this big uh, table set before where God is the provider of this, this feast, and people from every tribe and nation and tongue and, and everything just come from all over to, to enjoy this feast with God that he's provided. And I love, a uh, long, long, long time before John prophesied about it, Isaiah prophesied about it. In Isaiah 25, it says this, um, uh, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Now, those words, uh, feast of rich food, literally that means feast of fatness. I mean, this is a feast of, that, is, that you're not going to walk away from the table hungry. Like, this is this picture of completeness and fullness and it's a picture of God providing this feast of fatness for people. And this, and this, is, what, this is what awaits us. This is a beautiful picture of, of the hope that we get to have in, in this, this meal that's shared in the presence of God. Now, just as important as food is who you eat food with, right? All right? It's, it's, it's the people that you eat food with. Now, um, uh, Tim Chester, he wrote a, a book called A Meal with Jesus, and he, in the beginning, he's describing his wife's cooking, and he says this. He says, her cooking gives tangible and edible form to her love. Tangible and edible form to her love. Now, my wife does this, um, and, and, and she uh, strives to cook meals that are healthy for me and for my, my boys, um, but she goes to great lengths to make them taste good. And I might complain about the amount of cauliflower in my diet, but she makes it taste good good. And it is a tangible, edible expression of her love for me, and she desires that I actually live a long life, right? Um, my mom creates food that is a tangible, edible expression of her love. My mother-in-law does this. I remember my grandmother doing this. I remember walking into my grandmother's house and smelling fried chicken, and she, it was my favorite thing that she would make, for, and she would make it just for me. And it was a tangible, edible expression of her love for me. 
Where did they get that from? Where did they get that from? Aren't they image bearers of God who are reflecting what God is like? Could it be that God gives us food to be a tangible, edible expression of his love for us? I mean, think about it. Our, our taste buds, uh, smelling food, the texture of food, the crunching of food. Like, there are, our whole senses come together when we eat a fantastic meal. Now, if, if we were just beings that were, were, were just biological beings that's just moving along or developing through naturalistic sort of means, right? If it was just about survival of the fittest uh, for, for human beings, if we were just trying to, to consume fuel, how did we ever end up with chocolate? Right? Like, we have this God who has, who has given all of these things, and he hasn't given these, us these things so that we would worship them. He hasn't given us food or, or, or drink so that we would worship them, but instead that we would see these things and worship him for them. Right? Um, before you get uh, too hungry and you start thinking about food, I'm going to pause and pray. Okay. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for the good, good gifts that you give us. Uh, Father, I, I thank you especially for the perfection of those gifts how complete they are and how satisfying they are if we'll let them be. But Father, I, I pray that this morning that um, you would remind us of your great love for us and uh, that we would be able to come to you empty-handed and receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the, the things that Melissa and I like to do on date nights is uh, we, we like to experience new, fo new, new food. And that doesn't just mean like going to a fancy restaurant. Sometimes you find the best food in, in dive places and, uh, and finding really, really good food and then trying to like emulate it. Um, a lot of times it, it's just about Melissa finding a really good recipe online and us uh, go shopping for that food. And then either the, the boys go to my parents' house or, or her parents' house for the night or, um, or we just put them to bed and we'll stay up late cooking. And, uh, and, and it's about being in the kitchen together and it's, sh it's talking and it's just, you're just being with one another and then it's sitting down to this meal, right? That you just come to the, have you ever come to the table and you experience a meal that's just perfect, right? Like you, you take a bite of it and it's not like, oh, this needs salt or like, oh, this is overcooked or it's undercooked, which is even worse or, or the side is burnt or why isn't there bread? We really need some bread. Like, like everything is there. It's just complete. It's just perfect. Um, my go-to meal that, that I like to cook is a rolled flank steak. And uh, flank steak is great because it's a very inexpensive cut of meat, and, but you can make it taste like a million dollars. So you take a flank steak and you lay it on the, on the cutting board and then uh, it, the grain is going east to west, right? And so you put your hand on it and you, and you gently slice the flank steak open and you butterfly it like a book. And so then you take uh, uh, breadcrumbs that's got parsley and like three different cheeses and you spread that all over it and then you layer it with prosciutto and then uh, fresh basil leaves. You roll that up, you wrap it up with some kitchen twine and then you coat it with kosher salt and you sear the outside of that and then you bake it till it's the right temperature. And see, when you slice in do it, you get a piece of, of beef and, and prosciutto and cheese and all of it in one bite and you just take it and it's just like perfect. All of it is there. And, and I did it one time where I forgot the fresh basil and, and dried basil doesn't work 
the same way. So I, I just said, well, I'll just make it without it. And, and so we took a bite, and it was just like, nah. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like 80% there. It's just, ah, uh, you know, it's not completely there. Um, Melissa has this cookbook. It's called um, uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And uh, the author of the cookbook says, basically, if you know the essential ingredients of a meal, you can, you can cook anything. And, and she writes this, there are only four basic factors that determine how good your food will taste. Salt, which will enhance its flavor. Fat, which amplifies flavor and makes appealing textures possible. So you guys are learning all sorts of stuff this morning. Acid, which brightens and balances. And heat, which ultimately determines the texture of food. In other words, if you know the essential elements, you can create a complete meal, right? Complete meal. Why am I talking about this? In Jesus, we find perfection and completeness and satisfaction. We're going through this series called Jesus Saturation and, and we're especially honing in on, on our house churches and what does it look like to be a house church and what is the foundation of our house church? And last week we talked about this, this definition of church, that church is the people of God, people of God saved by the work of Christ for his purposes in the world. And this week I really want us to focus in on the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus. Because it's the work of Jesus to save us, which is our power. It's our foundation. It's everything. And you need to understand that this work of Jesus is perfect. Absolutely perfect. It is missing nothing. It is complete. And it is something that will deeply, deeply satisfy you. So here's what I mean uh, by complete. We're going to look at three things this morning that make it complete. The first is that Jesus saves you from your past. Jesus saves you from your past. Secondly, Jesus saves your present. And thirdly, Jesus saves your future. So look with me at Romans 5, I'm sorry, Romans 6, 5 through 11, the first passage that Denny read for us this morning. <clears throat> for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you underline in your Bibles or highlight that last line, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. You see, what Jesus has done for us in his perfect life is he's gone to the cross and he's made the perfect sacrifice. And because of that, he makes this exchange where he takes on our sin he gives us his righteousness. This is called justification. That's the fancy theological word, justification. That's what he's accomplished for us. That God looks at us and he doesn't see our past sin. He doesn't see our past sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. We are dead to sin, but alive to God. And that hasn't always been the case. When our first parents, then they disobeyed God and they reached out and they took that fruit, that edible thing, which symbolized their disobedience and walked away from God. That, that, they died that day, spiritually speaking. They died to God that day. Sin and death began to reign in them. They, 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 they were made alive to death but they died to God. Uh, Paul talks about the fact that we were dead in the trespasses of our sins. 
For you, if you are in Christ, if you've, if you've accepted what he has done for you, then by grace you've been given this beautiful gift and you've been justified and you are dead to sin and alive to God. Now, how many of you uh, plan on going to a Super Bowl party today? All right. I have bad news for you. I mean, really, but um, I had a point. <laughs> anyway, um, as you go, if you went to a Super Bowl party today and you walked into the party and you saw this spread of food, or let's, let's face it, um, we're going to Super Bowl parties to eat. You walked into this house, and there's a spread of food. I mean, there's hot wings, and there's sandwiches, and there's chips, and there's dip, and there's guac, and there's nachos, and there's like little smokies with toothpicks in them, and, and then there's just this big spread out in front of you, and you walk in, and you're like, the, the host is like, hey, dig in, man, and you're just like, nah, I'm good. Like, and you reach into a bag, and you, and you pull out like the heel of a loaf of bread, you know, and you're like, I'm good, I got this, this is good. Right? Do you think that your host might be a little insulted? Right, when it comes to this idea of justification, I think a lot of us are going to one day stand before God. And there's this table, right, that we talked about. And God's going to ask us, well, why do you deserve to sit at this table? And some people will be like, I brought my own food. I come justifying myself. See, I don't need a savior. I'm not a sinner in need of salvation. I, 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 I come, I'm good. That's what we say. And, and here's, here's the, the standard for why we say we're good. We, we, we say we're good based on, on the standard of other people. We look at other human beings and say, compared to them, I'm good. I'm justified compared to them. So I, I'm, 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 not a, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not unkind. Like, I'm a really kind person. I'm not a murderer, Right? Or um, I, I, I am uh, faithful. I'm, I'm completely faithful in my relationships. I've, I've never cheated. Or I'm a, I'm a truthful person. I'm not a liar. Right? We, we would come with, with this standard. And, and the standard is, well, uh, uh, we're comparing ourselves to the person on death row. Right? Or we're, we're comparing ourselves to the neighbor that's having an affair. Or we're comparing ourselves to the coworker who's embezzling money. Based on, on those relationships, yes, we are, we're, we're better than them. But, but, but what if that's not the standard? What if God's the standard? What if God said in, in his word, be holy as I am holy? What if Jesus comes along and said, here's a, here's a completely new standard which you have to live up to, which is impossible to live up to? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be li liable to the hell of fire. We would say, I've never killed anybody with my hands. Oh, you mean with my words. You mean with my heart. You mean with my intention. You see, it's not just about what we do. It's also about the desires that we have. Could we really say that we, we have never wanted someone's life to be removed from ours? 
Or we might say, I'm a completely faithful person. Here comes Jesus and he says in verse 27, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. New standard, right? It's not about not just uh, having an affair physically. Have you ever wanted to? Have you ever looked at a person and said, I wonder what it would be like to be with them intimately? Have you looked at pornography? Have you read that romance novel? Have you done any of that? And, and can you honestly say before God that you've never had an, an adulterous relationship in your heart? You might say, well, I'm, I'm completely truthful. I'm, I'm not a liar. Jesus says this, verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So um, I don't think that many of us take oaths anymore. Anybody swear an oath this week? But I think maybe the closest thing we would come to this is like, you know, we would say like, I, I swear on my mother's life. Maybe that was more around when I was a kid. We probably don't do that anymore because it's really bad for moms. And um, we, 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 we don't really say things like that. Instead, we, we make all sorts of promises and we go to all sorts of contracts and, and we say, you can trust me and you can trust my word. Why, why do we have these things? I mean, the reason why oaths existed and contracts exist is because human beings can't be trusted because we're liars. Do you honestly think that you could stand before God and say, I have always told the truth and I have never lied? See, there's this new standard, and it's, and it's, not, it's not the guy on death row, and it's not your neighbor who's cheating, and it's not your, your coworker who's getting away with it. it. It's not those. The standard is Jesus. The standard is God. And if you were to come into God's presence and say, I brought my own righteousness. I brought my own justice. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's pathetic, and it's sad, and it's foolish to say that. On the other hand, to come into the presence of God and say, I got nothing. I've got nothing but the body and the blood of Jesus. Because his salvation, his salvation has made me dead to sin and alive to God. I love what we read in John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, not only were we justified before God, but we've been adopted into his family. That because of the, the perfection of Jesus' salvation, you are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Justified and adopted. Now here's our tendency. Our tendency is to believe a lie something like this. Jesus plus my own good works will equal salvation. We would look at the cross of Jesus and say, that is really nice, that did a lot, but it didn't get me all the way there. My sin was so great. Like some of you might be, be on the, the side where I'm, I don't need a savior, I'm totally good, but some of you might be on the opposite side of that. You would say, God uh, could not possibly save me. I am so filthy. I, I have sinned so much. My, my, my sin is so grievous against God, there's no possible way. I want you to understand what you're doing. You're saying that Jesus, his, his, his uh, salvation for you, his cross for you was insufficient. What you're essentially saying is your 
greater than him. You elevate yourself and you demean him. It's what essentially you're saying. And you're saying, I have to add to what he did. I have to be all of these things. I have to, to, to follow all of these rules and, and I have to do these things and, and abstain from these things. I, I have to do all this stuff because Jesus' salvation for me was incomplete. And that's a lie. Second thing to see here is that we are being saved present tense. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. By the way, if you underline, that's the, the part to underline, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, present tense. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is the gospel. This is the life of the Son of God come. The life of the Son of God come to, to, to make that exchange, to go to the cross, to live, to die, and to rise again. This is the gospel. And if you've embraced that, not only has it saved your past, not only has it justified you, not only has it, has it adopted you into the family, but this is also the, the place where the Spirit of God comes in you. The third person of the Trinity takes up residence in you. And it's, it's called sanctification. That's the big theolo theological word we're talking about here that you now have this power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is living in you, enabling you to live. It's this new power that you have access to. You know, you might be here this morning and, and you think that, that if you don't please your, your heavenly father, he's gonna walk out on you. Maybe you had a relationship with your earthly dad and at one point he walked out and for some reason, you believed it was your fault that he left. And in your relationship with God, you think that if you mess up, that if you don't strive really hard, that if you don't get it exactly perfect, that your Heavenly Father is going to walk away from you and leave you behind. And that's not the truth. It's not the truth. There's a, a whole book of the New Testament uh, called Galatians. Paul writes this letter to address this church and, uh, and some of these religious leaders have come into the church and they've tried to convince everybody in the church that um, in order to be saved, they have to first become Jewish. They have to be circumcised. You're, you're, you're not saved by what Jesus has done for you completely. Like you need to add something to that. And so Paul writes this whole letter to address that and, and he says this in Galatians 3, 1 through 3. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You would, you would say, I know that, that his grace has covered my past. I know that I have been saved and I've been brought into the family, but now that I'm in the family, it's up to me to stay in the family. Uh, my children were adopted. I understand this concept of adoption. I think that it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. I, I have to remind my kids every so often. It happened last night. I sat 
in my son's bed and I was massaging his forehead as I talked to him and I said to him, there is nothing you could ever do that will make me stop loving you. There's nothing you could ever do that's gonna make you stop being my son or gonna stop me from being your dad. Now, I am a pretty average, maybe below average father. If I could do that, how much greater is our Heavenly Father's love for us? It is not the adopted child's choice to be brought into the family. It's the father's choice. And it's not the adopted child's choice to remain in the family. It's the father's choice. And the father has embraced you. And he's holding on to you. And you need to hear the words from your Heavenly Father's word. There is nothing you could ever do that's going to make him stop loving you. We believe this lie. Jesus plus our own strength will equal our, our salvation. That what Jesus did wasn't enough. I need to lend my strength to it. And that demeans God and it elevates us. And it's not the truth. Not only has he saved our past and saved us in our present, but he's also saved our future. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for, faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's God's power. When Peter says it's not perishable, it means that it doesn't have a shelf life, this hope that we have, this salvation. It's not going to rot. It's not going to go bad over the passage of time. When Peter says that it can't be defiled, it can't be desecrated, it can't be polluted, it can't be tainted by what's done to us. You might be sitting here this morning saying somebody has sinned against you in such a way that it has defiled you and made you unlovable for God, and that's not the truth. It doesn't fade. It doesn't evaporate. It doesn't dissolve due to the sins that we commit. It is held in the power of God's hand, this hope. Jesus said this in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Did, did you hear what it says? This Father is greater than all. The Father is greater than your flesh. The Father is greater than the world. The Father is greater than your enemy. The Father is greater than all, and he holds you in his hand, and you cannot be snatched out of it. I think a lot of us are laboring under this idea that our worst failures are yet to come. And there will come a day when we cross a line that we cannot come back from and God will let us go and that is not the truth. You know, this tendency to believe this lie, Jesus plus my own endurance will equal my salvation. Trying to add to the work of Jesus because we believe the lie that it's not enough, that it's not complete and that it can't satisfy. That's not the truth. It's not the truth. You might be here this morning and you might say, I'm good. 
Or maybe I'm not good. Maybe if I am compared to Jesus, maybe I find out that I, I do need to be saved, that I do need to be justified by him. If that's where you're at this morning, I'd love to talk to you. I'll be standing right over here after the gathering's over. I'd love to talk to you. But if you're here this morning and you say, I, I am in Christ. I am in Christ, but I struggle to believe this. I myself, I think about my past, and I think of, 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 of some character issues that I've had in the past that will still rear their ugly heads in me, and I wonder, why isn't that dead? Why am I still struggling with that? I'm supposed to be dead to sin and alive to God, and this seems to be very alive in me. I look about my, my, my present circumstances, and, and, and I worry that, that, the, that the Spirit of God is gonna lose this battle to my flesh. Or worst of all, and most often, the lie that I believe is that I am going to blow it. I'm gonna blow it. And that'll be the end. It's a lie. It's a lie to believe that you can out the grace of God. It's a complete lie. So how do we remind ourselves of the truth? I think that's what's needed most for us is that here is this faith that we have and here is this, this truth that we stand on and yet we're prone to wander away from it and yet we're prone to forget it. How do we continually remind ourselves of the truth? Here's two things to throw at you. First is feasting. It's feasting. Um, when I uh, leave here, I'm gonna go home and I'm, I'm gonna get a pork shoulder out of the refrigerator. It's been marinating for the last 24 hours. Um, and I'm gonna make a sandwich beyond all sandwiches. Uh, it's, it's what I call a Havana luau. It's my take of a Cubano sandwich. And uh, the, the, the pork shoulder has been marinating in, in orange juice. The acid sort of helps break down some of the toughness. It makes it real tender. And, and some lime juice and cumin, a little bit of oregano. And, uh, and there's a ton of garlic in it. And uh, I'm going to take that. I'm going to cook it up. And then I'm going to take those Hawaiian sweet rolls, you know, that you buy at the supermarket that come in that little cardboard wax, you know, tray, and you take that, but you don't pull the, the, the sweet rolls apart. Instead, you, you, you slice it open like two big slices of bread, and you, you lay it open, and you smother the inside with butter, and then you take the bottom part, and you flip it over, and that's where you coat it with the, the, uh, the pork, and then a layer of Swiss cheese, dill pickles, and mustard, and you put the top back on, and then you, you fry that thing up so that the outside is crispy, golden brown. Now, I'm going to take that sandwich to a Super Bowl party. And I really don't care if the Bengals win or lose. <laughs> I am going to eat that sandwich. And as I'm eating that sandwich, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to praise him for the smell and the taste and the texture. And as, you know, juice is dripping down my face onto my lap, I'm going to be praising God for this sandwich. Because in it is something that points me to him that his salvation for me is sufficient and it's perfect and it's good. It's missing nothing. It's missing nothing. And see, well, what if it wasn't just a Super Bowl party? What was every meal? Whenever you sit down to a meal and the food in front of you, you can look at that and say, this points me to God. And he loves me. He wants me to enjoy it. He wants me to see this and look at him and thank him and be reminded of him. What if every meal was a reminder to us of the sufficiency and the perfection of Christ's work on the cross for us? What if we ate with others and we invited them in our home and that, that, that meal was, was more than just eating food. It was, it was about celebrating who God is and showing them, showing them how 
perfect his salvation is? What if we eat meals together? Our house church is really good at this. I think other house churches are really good at it too. I want to have a competition. But to enjoy food with one another like this. Feasting is, is one of the ways that we can. Like, I don't know how many times a day you eat. Maybe it's two, maybe it's three, four. I don't throw snacks in there. But if, but if every time you ate, that was a connection point for you to be reminded of what Jesus has done for you. And how helpful would that be? Feasting. Secondly, fasting. What if in the absence of food, you were reminded? In the absence of food. What, what if, in, instead of sitting down to a plate of food, you, you sat down to, to God's word? And just as Jesus said that man does not live on bread alone, but on every mouth, the word that comes from the mouth of God, that you, you, would, you would feast on God's word. You would spend that time. And, and you read these passages of scripture. Read these things that remind you of the sufficiency of, of Christ's work of salvation, past, present, and future, and feast on those things. But you see, it's in the absence that we can also remind ourselves of what Jesus gave up for us. We are, we're giving up a trifle in giving up a meal. But Jesus gave up everything. He emptied himself, and he took on flesh, and he came, and he lived a humble, humble life, and then he gave his life over to the point of death on a cross, and he absorbed the wrath of God. Like, he, he gave up everything. Can we, in, in giving up a meal on a regular basis, what if you did that like once a week? Just practically speaking, I'm going to be reminded through this of the sufficiency. Now see, you could turn this into legalism if you want. You could make this something that you have to do in order for God to love you. And that would just be a complete denial of the point. You need to know that he loves you. If you are in Christ Jesus, regardless of what you do with your food or not do with your food, you need to know that he is going to love you tomorrow just as much as he loves you right now. You know what, what, what I love about Romans? There's this line in Romans where it says that his love leads us to repentance. His love leads us to repentance. I'm gonna close with, with that thought. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. We praise you because it's perfect. Lord Jesus, your work, your life, your death, your resurrection, everything about what you did is perfect. It's not missing anything. It's complete. It couldn't possibly be any better than it is. It's perfect. We praise you, Lord Jesus. You deserve all glory and all honor and all power because of what you've done for us. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would remind us of this and that we would leave here today glorifying you because of this work. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.